Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent S. And I'm C, the provocateur. And Cam, we are joined by a very special agent this week, Ray from the Not Before Coffee podcast. Say hey, Ray. Hey, Ray. That works every time. Now, Ray, as uh, you're a guest with us this week, so my first question to you is, as we're a spy movie podcast, what is your favorite spy movie? And don't say Men in Black 2. No. <laughs> Why would I? Uh, no, my favorite is a kids movie. I love Kim Possible and not because I grew up on it because I'm far too old for that. So Kim Possible, so the drama and make of that what you will. It's funny. I actually uh, work in a bakery and I have made my fair share of Kim Possible birthday cakes. So you and I can relate there. What, that we're both adults who know who Kim Possible is? That's right. <laughs> That's a true human connection, guys. Um, now, right, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and obviously the podcast that you're hailing from? Okay, well, I come from Not Before Coffee, which launched on the 15th of September. So it's really new. And it is all about what I do in my life after I have had coffee, because I drink a lot. I am drinking cup seven right now. And I probably have had more if I'd not been in meetings for most of the day, which is not good. <laughs> so seven is the restraint number. Yeah, or seven is the restraint number. On the weekend, I probably go to about 10. Wow. Wow. Scott, how many do you have on a day? I would consider myself to be a coffee connoisseur. I just had an espresso before this. That's number three of the day, and I'm done. Well, I have a confession. I've never drank a cup of coffee in my life. What? Yeah. <laughs> how come? How is that possible? I don't like the taste. I've just never been able to drink coffee ever. I don't drink tea either. I, I have tried to get him to drink coffee before when we've been on holiday together in the past, and he just won't touch his stuff. Oh, I, I've i been drinking coffee since I was so young, I can't remember when I had my first cup. And my current mug is a half pint. Wow. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I, I don't know if it was just me in, in primary school. I don't know what they call primary schools in uh, Canada, Cam. But um, we did like a little taste testing in like year one where we would taste different flavors and see how we react. And I remember tasting coffee and being like, eh. What kind of school did you go to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is a good question. Was this a product testing school? <laughs> doesn't sound familiar to me i can all i can remember from primary school was somebody bought in horse chestnuts from their chestnut tree and we were told don't eat them they're poisonous so of course i had to peel one and start eating it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's a uh, standard kid behavior i'd say yeah i was quite sick <laughs> I, I like i remember hating coffee for years and then i got to like a late teen and got my first job working in a shopping center next to a starbucks uh, and then I started drinking mochas, and before long, I was double shot in espressos three times a day. Mocha, the introductory drug. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now I think I went straight from having tea all the time to drinking lots of coffee. Now, moving off of uh, caffeine, 
Yes. Apart from Kim Possible, of course, which is heralded as one of the best spy movies of all time. Of course. Of course. Uh, is there any other sort of spy movies that you fondly think of? I've I've watched so many. I was trying to think of the ones that I have watched most recently. And I have to say that thing, something I watched more recently was you were talking about Hannah in one of your recent episodes. Mm-hmm. And I watched the Alex Ryder Amazon series, which right. was much better than the movie, but not quite as good as the books. And that is, I mean, that's a teenage youthful spy who's taken into the dark world of it courtesy of his family so the way that he was brought up and he was prepared for it the movie sucked but the tv series was actually quite dark Hmm. and i'd say that's probably quite close to favorite but obviously there were the earlier james bonds and i do like the original casino royale the original original casino royale yeah, I liked wow. it. Da- um, David Niven was so suave and sophisticated as James Bond. I think he had that elegance about him. He really was a gentleman's man. And that came across in the way that he held himself. And that made a really good James Bond for me. Before we move on, I, I am aware that you have a little bit of history with the Bond series, Ray. Is that correct? I do indeed. My great uncle was actually an executive producer on Dr. No and Goldfinger. (laughs) So I stubbed my toe on gold bars, which, well, fake gold bars, obviously. But I did stub my toe on fake gold bars that were used as doorstops in my aunt's house. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. He also worked, he worked on quite a few films, including the original School for Scoundrels. I mean, okay, he, pa- yeah. he passed on when I was seven or eight, so don't have massive connections with him because obviously I was very young, but there are a lot of tales that I'm now old enough to hear, <laughs> which I wasn't. <laughs> wow. I mean, that is a, a, a big connection to the Bond universe. And um, we have just recorded our, our Doctor No uh, episode a few weeks back now, um, but hopefully we can see if we can get you back for Goldfinger to tell us some more. Yeah, well, I'll have to dig out the family tales and see what I can get from my aunt. See if you can find any gold bars for us. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I do have such fond memories of losing a toenail because of one. They're heavier than they look. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, there you are, Cam. The question for you is, what are we covering this week? Well, you alluded to it earlier. We are going to take on the 2002 sequel to Men in Black entitled Men in Black 2. Original title, we like it. Um, which brings me on to one of my favourite bits of every episode, where I read the lovely synopsis from letterboxd.com. Uh, any bets on the length of this one, guys? Three lines. I'm going to say five. Oh, okay. Uh, Cam might need to take up coffee by the end of this one. <laughs> Stand back. Here we go. Right. Men in Black 2. Same planet. New scum. K and J reunite to provide our best, last, and only line of defense against a sinister seductress who levels the toughest challenge yet to the MIB's untarnished mission statement, protecting Earth from the scum of the universe. It's been four years since the alien-seeking agents averted intergalactic disaster of epic proportions. Now it's a race against the clock as J must convince K 
who not only has absolutely no memory of his time spent with the MIB, but is also the only living person left with the expertise to save the galaxy, to reunite with the MIB before the Earth submits to ultimate destruction. Oh my god. Yeah. Really? There was more effort put into writing that letterbox synopsis than writing this movie. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. It sounds like they were writing a dissertation. <laughs> this actually could go on record as our longest one. I actually had to click a button to expand it. Oh my god. That's ridiculous. It, Who wrote that? 14 Who's lines the person long. out there that was like, I need to make an expensive synopsis of Men in Black 2? I had to pause whilst reading that. I've never <laughs> encountered was... that before. <laughs> Maybe it was the same person who thought, I'm going to make this film sound interesting. Mm. Uh, entirely. Entirely possible. Um, now, we'll dig into the film a bit deeper, but let's have some initial thoughts about maybe when we first saw this film or any sort of memories in the back of our mind. Ray, as you're our guest, you're up first. Right. Well, I actually first saw this film when it came out in the cinema um, because it was, oh, another Men in Black film. I liked the first one. Let's go and see what the second one's like. And I didn't think of it as a as anything more than just light entertainment. I wasn't thinking, oh, there's going to be any in-depth storyline or anything else. Wasn't disappointed in that one. Um, <laughs> the soundtrack was... I don't think there really was a noticeable soundtrack, which I would always associate with a film that stars Will Smith. And the biggest thing that I noticed was... It's interesting they say four years in that because they mention five years several times in the film. That's something I, I just noticed. But he seemed like he'd taken over the K role, being really, really serious and lacking in humour. Right. And that's what yeah. struck me when I left the cinema was I thought he was a comedian of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded really mean. No, no, it's it's your initial thoughts. You can't help that. That's what you thought when you were watching it in 2002. Uh, what about yourself, Cam? So I skipped this one in theaters because, as I'd said, I wasn't a fan of the original back in 1997. Um, and so, yeah, this one rolled out. And despite being 21 years old and seeing, like, every single movie in theaters, um, I skipped this one. I watched it on video. And I remember just going, crap. And, you know, that was about the end of it. Like, I just thought it was junk. It was like 83 minutes without the credits. And uh, you could tell why. So that was my take at the time. Uh, I wasn't surprised by that, Cam. I was genuinely expecting you to be in the same vein as last time. Hopefully it changes like the last one did. But, uh, I, I, oh, that, that didn't sound good. Um, <laughs> as for myself, I did see it in the cinema. Uh, I was a cool age of 15, so I was probably still quoting lines from the first one at that point. Although this one is definitely void of uh, quotable lines, I would say. But, yeah, I remember enjoying it at the time. I definitely had the single which uh, the black suits come in. I still, I, I don't like that compared to the first song, but uh, it did. I do remember buying that on CD. Sorry. Uh, I don't know why I did that. But um, yeah, I, I remember liking it, but not liking it as much as the first one. Right. That doesn't yeah. uh, surprise me. I think the entire world pretty much agreed with you on that one. Um, which leads me into my question, Cam. Background on this film. How did it come together? Yeah, it's kind of a surprise there wasn't a Men in Black sequel rolling right out of, you know, the original in 1997 because it was such a massive hit. 
Um, and yet that was not the case. Barry Sonnenfeld, the director of Men in Black, you know, him and Will Smith got along really well. And they said, you know what? Let's not make Men in Black 2. I got a better idea. Wild, wild west. <laughs> and so we got 1999's Wild, Wild West instead, which was a debacle for everyone involved. Uh, I'm sure you two probably saw it as well. Yeah, didn't he turn down the Matrix for Wild Wild West? That's right, yeah. That was a bad move. Just a bit, but then the Matrix probably wouldn't have been as watchable with Will Smith in the lead. Mm. Yep. I just remember a very long uh, speech from Kevin Smith about the production of Wild Wild West. Yeah, it's pretty legendary, the story of the giant spider. But nonetheless, Wild Wild West lost a ton of money. It very much ruined Will Smith's um, hot streak for releasing movies on the 4th of July weekend. And uh, I think everyone was just kind of embarrassed about it. But the main takeaway Barry Sonnenfeld took from Wild Wild West was no one likes Will Smith playing the straight man. And so they decided, you know what, guys, let's get the team back together, kind of, you know, put the shine back on our names and make a sequel to Men in Black. Um, and so they hired a, a writer named Robert Gordon. He co-wrote Galaxy Quest. Um, he also would go on to write Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. And he came up with the basic story and premise of this movie. Um, he was ultimately rewritten at a certain point. Um, he wrote a screenplay. They brought in another guy named Barry Finero, who was a writer-producer on TV shows like Golden Girls. Um, he also wrote the screenplays for the movie Kingpin that the Farrelly brothers did, as well as this Richard Dreyfuss mob comedy called The Crew that the world never saw, really. Um, but Finero was brought in to basically inject as many pop culture references as possible, which was something that Robert Gordon and even Barry Sonnenfeld weren't really aiming for. And so the whole who let the dogs out thing, oh, that's a Barry Finero line right there, or moment, I should say. I'm cringing just thinking about that scene already. Yeah, I, I just mentally groaned. <laughs> right. And so this movie is very curious because the budget for it is enormous. It cost like $140 million at the time, which, you know, you look at that in $2,002. That's extreme. The main takeaway I got from this movie was everyone got paid a lot. Like a lot. A big part of the reason that it didn't maybe it happened initially really quickly was also because uh, Steven Spielberg seemed to walk out with the most money coming off the first men in black. But when it came to renegotiate for men in black Two, Will Smith and Barry Sonnenfeld, probably Tommy Lee Jones as well. were really like, Hey guys, if we're going to come back, we want big paychecks. And so that happened. Um, everyone made an absolute fortune making this movie. Um, the production though was kind of a mess. Um, there was a looming actor strike at the time. And so there was a lot of panic that this production was going to get shut down by an actor's strike. And so it was being drastically rewritten, you know, day by day, probably by Barry Finero on set as well as probably uncredited writers. Um, and there was just a lot of fear about what was going to happen with this movie. So it often feels like a lot of the actors are improving or just mugging their way through scenes. I suspect that's because a lot of tensions were going on. Barry Sonnenfeld said this was the most stressful production he's ever made. He thought he was having a heart attack at one point because the studio was getting involved and they were big on the Will Smith romance angle in this film and he didn't care about it. It was battles going back and forth, it sounds like. Uh, Barry Sonnenfeld has said to this day, nothing has ever been like Men in Black 2. I, I don't know how to reply to that because uh, nothing has ever been like Men in Black 2, but that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> you say that the last film he worked on was Nine Lives with <laughs> Kevin Spacey. 
but a smooth production, right? That, those cats were really well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, because I know so so well how well cats behave. Especially on camera, yeah. <laughs> no problems there. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, but some interesting side notes on this movie. Um, Famke Jansen was originally cast as Serlina the villain, but left due to family illnesses. And so... Laura Flynn Boyle was an early contender for the role. She ended up getting it once uh, Jansen bowed out. Um, I hope everyone was okay on Famke Jansen's uh, family side, um, but they kind of did her a favor in getting her out of this movie, I would say. Um, she would go on to do X-Men, you know, in 2000 and whatever, and X-Men 2 in 2002. She was doing just fine. She did the clunker that was X-Men The Last Stand in 2006. But it made a lot of money. Yeah, a lot. She was getting paid by that point. She's fine. <laughs> yeah um the other side note on this one is kind of interesting uh, uh the ending of the film was supposed to be set on the world trade towers and then 9-11 obviously happened in 2001 and so they had to drastically revise the ending and switch it to kind of a nondescript location and there was also going to be references throughout the movie to the world trade center um kind of setting up this finale and they had to get rid of a lot of that stuff as well same thing happened with the was it spider-man 2 with the trailer it was the yeah. first one. It was actually him catching a helicopter between the two towers. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't they have to cut out a load of stuff that was that had already been filmed, and then they had to change the posters and everything. Yeah, a lot of movies were impacted pretty bad that year by nine eleven. Um, I remember too. There was like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, Collateral Damage, that was supposed to be released right around nine eleven, and it was like, oh no, bump that one like a year back. So there was a lot of yeah, a lot of productions were affected quite severely by. Uh, 9-11. So, yeah. Men in Black 2, just one of the many. So it sounds like there was a bit of a, obviously a troubled production, but did it do well at the box office? Oh, Scott, it did. So this movie cost $140 million, as I said. Domestically, it made $194 million. International, it did 251 for a total of $445 million. Now, that is a downgrade from the 589 that Men in Black 1 made, but nonetheless... People walked out of this movie, you know, making a lot of money. One of the things I will always say about when they talk about the box office is they're not taking account of how many people actually walked out of there thinking, oh dear, what the heck have I just watched? They only take account of the amount of money that's gone into it beforehand. So I would say that they knew that responses weren't great because I think you would have probably gotten Men in Black 3 a little quicker if they had have thought that people really loved this movie. See, I was thinking, now you've told me this information about the box office, maybe this has the same problem that Star Trek Into Darkness had. Well, that, that film right. had a lot of problems, but like it, it certainly <laughs> did well, but the it went on to do badly in its third film, and it kind of soured people a bit on the franchise. Yeah, maybe a little bit of that, for sure. That is a, a common thing. I remember the original Tomb Raider even came out, um, and it made a ton of money, and the studio got on, you know, putting out a sequel to um, to Lara Croft Tomb Raider very quickly, and they made Cradle of Life, and that movie tanked because no one had liked the original. So that is a, a thing that does happen. Yeah, I can barely remember the third Men in Black, apart from it starred, wasn't it Josh Brolin, who seems to be everywhere right now? That's right, yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he played uh, Agent K in that, the young version. Um, so ultimately, uh, Men in Black 2 landed at number five for the year 2002, and we tackled this year before in our Born Identity episode, so I'm not going to give the exhaustive breakdown of the year. You can go back to the Born Identity if you want to hear more. 
Um, but the top three that year was Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and Spider-Man. Born Identity was down at number 19, so Men in Black 2 definitely did better. Men in Black landed at number five, right between Star Wars Episode 2 and Die Another Day. All films I did see at the cinema, and none of them I liked. <laughs> <laughs> That's cold, Scott. That's really cold. That is. <laughs> a couple actors also had very notable 2002s. Uh, Johnny Knoxville, this was the year of Johnny Knoxville. This is the year Jackass the movie comes out. It's at number 56 for the year. At number 185, he made a comedy called Big Trouble with Tim Allen. And at number 207, he had this sort of, I think it was like a 50s set sort of gang drama called Deuces Wild. I think Stephen Dorff might have been in it. Um, and so Johnny Knoxville was very busy, as was Rosario Dawson, who had at number 126 the Spike Lee film 25th Hour, which is amazing. And at spot number 197, she had a huge debacle this year. She co-starred in the Eddie Murphy film Adventures of Pluto Nash, one of the all-time big bombs. Oh, God, that film was awful. <laughs> I heard it was so bad, even at the age of 15, I didn't go and see it. Yeah, it was a it was a year of highs and lows for Rosario Dawson and Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, that was... I was going to say, didn't she? She had quite a few years of not some really bad films. Like she also starred in Josie and the Pussycats around that time, kind of era. Yep, and Oliver Stone's Alexander Rosario Dawson is a great actress, and she definitely took quite a while to find some comfortable footing in Hollywood. She for me is one of those actresses that I feel like is is a fantastic actress, but never got the right part to be thrust into the main picture of Hollywood. She really doesn't have an iconic role. You can say um, playing Night Nurse on the Marvel Netflix series, I guess, got her a fair amount of attention. But she doesn't have like a big role that's really, you know, become the definitive point of her career at this point, at least. She's still fairly young, so why not? Anything could happen. But at this point, yeah, not really. Wasn't she in Rent, though? Yes, she was, oh. yeah. That's a good point, actually. But she was just in the film version, right? Or was she on the? She wasn't on I the stage, she, was she? I think she was. She was in the original stage version, and mm. then don't quote me on that. But I think she was because they pulled a lot of the people from the original stage version for the film. I stand corrected then, because Rent is obviously a huge defining uh, experience on Broadway. I'm just not a big uh, theater guy, so I wasn't as aware of that. I never saw the Rent film, so I can't speak to that. I actually watched it recently, so yeah, I can. She was definitely in the film. I don't know about her appearing in the uh, Broadway version, though. Mm -hmm. But hmm. yeah, that sort of sums up the year of uh, 2002 for me on the box office and production end. Um, the only note I'll mention is that Will Smith, uh, in an episode of Jimmy Fallon in 2020, when he was promoting Bad Boys for Life, um, referred to this film and said it, he was not happy with it. So I think everyone got, made a ton of money, but I think a lot of people walked away going, I don't know if we pulled that one off, guys. Which leads me into our thoughts on the film quite uh, seamlessly, I would say. So we'll go back to you, Ray. Now you've had, what is it, 18 years to digest this film? <laughs> yeah, and I was 28 when it came out. So now you can do your maths. <laughs> <laughs> I only know that because I can remember working out how old I was going to be in the millennium and thinking, I'm going to be ancient. Now I don't <laughs> think that anymore. <laughs> well, I think... One of the things that I found really disconcerting was there wasn't any clarity at the very beginning about how many years had passed since 
K had gone and L was literally a single line or she wanted to go back to the morgue and that was it as though she was completely irrelevant and then of course he is being so serious there's hardly any humor from him from Will Smith's character he is so dry and I think you've pre you previously mentioned he is not the straight guy and he should never play the straight guy and that is what he's doing at the very beginning for me that was my interpretation and also they mentioned several times that it's a secret society they work for it's not so secret it, they seem to well, be no. all over the place but <laughs> <laughs> not, not the best kept secret but it's a secret nonetheless Exactly. Compared to the first film, they're playing it a bit uh, loose with the uh, exposing people to aliens in this film. They always use the same ones, though, to highlight there are aliens. The two guys on the bikes with the lights. Yeah. I wonder how many yeah. times they actually appear in this film as just cycling past to highlight there are aliens among us. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Linda Fiorentino playing Elle in the first film. And I made a comment when we recorded that one about Men in Black and having a very small female cast and it being a very male-heavy film. And I don't think this film does much to improve on that record. Obviously, the bad guy is played by uh, Lara Flynn Boyle, who a lot of people know from Twin Peaks. Um, but you've got Rosario Dawson who's basically just being dragged through the film, not much agency to her. And I, I just think, again, it's not doing a lot for, for female representation. Yeah, especially when you consider that she's a model with a very, very tight bra and very little else on. Yeah, that feels like a very 2002 idea of a studio being like, let's give a very big role to a female actor for this film. By the way, she's a Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The Linda Fiorentino stuff is interesting because... I remember, you know, being very excited actually to see her as a member of the group at the end of the first movie, thinking, oh, if a sequel came around, I think she would be really interesting in terms of what she would add as, a, as you know, the dynamic there. Um, the story as to why she's not in this one is a little jumbled. Um, a lot of the scuttlebutt of Hollywood that's kind of come around over the years is that Tommy Lee Jones said he would not return if she was there. So... I don't know if that's true, but that has been the popular rumor over the years. Linda Fiorentino has shot that that down and said she was actually working on something else and couldn't do it. So it's kind of up in the air, I guess, what actually happened. But it just sounds like uh, she was never really going to come back for this movie. That's the thing. I mean, they really are living up to the men in black in the title by every <laughs> single one you see in the in HQ is male. I don't think I think you saw Martha Stewart on the screen at one point, and that was really it. Is that who that was? It was Martha yeah. Stewart. Yes. Oh, I wrote that down as who the hell is this lady on the screen? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just don't know. I don't. Know. So Scott, like, what was your takeaway revisiting it after this many years? I've definitely grown up a bit since two thousand two, eighteen years to be precise. Uh, I think my taste in films has changed. I I really enjoyed the first one. I went on record in the podcast before saying I enjoyed it. I felt that this film had absolutely nothing to offer. I'm not going to pull my punches on it. I feel like it was a, literally a cash-in on the Men in Black name without any thought behind uh, having a story that they actually want to tell. Yeah, like, uh, for me, this definitely... 
did not hold up on a second viewing. I didn't like it the first time around, but I did not have any moment of rediscovery um, watching it the way I did the first one. I thought this was terrible. Um, it's the epitome of the type of sequel we honestly don't get as much anymore, which is the sequel that just kind of replicates the original to lesser effect. That became very much a you know boilerplate go-to for many years in Hollywood, but... You know, at a certain point, we got movies like The Dark Knight. We got movies like, um, you know, just some of these franchises that would expand. Harry Potter being a good example. Lord of the Rings, where it became, no, no, you've got to build on what came before and tell a new story. And this feels like a bygone product of an era that just doesn't exist anymore, which is the sequel that's the same thing. It's actually a lot like Ghostbusters 2 in a lot of ways. And you look at the first one. It's a 90-something minute comedy. Um, it's fast paced. It sets up its world really well, but it has moments of genuine poignancy. Um, you have Tommy Lee Jones, you know, mourning this woman he'd met many years ago, or his, I can't remember if she was his wife at the time, but it was a woman that he was in love with. Um, you had Will Smith, you know, deciding to make this very significant, you know, decision in his life about what path he would choose stuff. You know, there was human elements to that movie. There is no human element to this movie whatsoever. I guess they wanted it to be the Rosario Dawson role, but Honestly, I don't know that I could come up with a single adjective to describe her personality in this movie. Insipid? Uh, yeah, wide-eyed. Um, I got nothing. Like, it, this character has absolutely zero personality and no agency whatsoever. Like, she kind of just does what the other characters tell her to do and is like, okay, I guess, sure. Yeah, I saw this thing and that's it. It really was very empty. I it struck me as it was kind of a money grab for merch, because oh yeah, the roles that they expanded from the first film were the roles that they expanded in the cartoon series. So the worms had a much bigger role this time. They were so insignificant last time. It was they were all smoking and in the coffee room, and that was it. And this time they had an apartment and they had individual characterization. And then, of course, there's Frank. And it really was for me, oh, here's some merchandise and kids are going to love this. It's like, okay, so kids are going to like coffee swilling smokers. It just struck me. If you think of a Disney film like Bambi or The Lion King or Aladdin, they've all got their direct-to-video sequels that are just not as good but just seem to have the same characters. Yeah. How dare you say that about Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time? <laughs> <laughs> if that's actually what it's called, I'm amazed you have that knowledge, Cam. It might actually be a stitch in time. I can't remember. It's twist in time or stitch in time. But yes, that is an actual movie that exists. Fair enough. They, well, also, they also have Little Mermaid 3, Ariel's Beginning. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, who asked for this stuff? But yeah, this, this film feels like the direct-to-DVD follow-up that's made with less money and yet it wasn't made with less money it's really frustrating because you think of the world of the men in black you know you end that first movie where you have that zoom out of you know the entire earth is just a marble that a giant alien is playing with they are basically opening the door to do really wondrous things with this franchise like i don't know we could have gone to space maybe for men in black too like a lot of franchises that's like the bottom of the barrel decision to go to space but i feel like it would actually be earned in this franchise um they just really do replicate the first one where you have this vague alien threat that wants a MacGuffin. In this case, it, it's the light of Zartha or something like that, which will do bad things, I guess. And they have to gun it down with big guns by the end. Like, it just feels like they're just going through the motions as opposed to deciding, 
well, let's see. Like, what else could this organization get involved in that could be interesting? It just feels like they looked at the first one and said, uh, I don't know, do that again, but bigger. Um, as you said, you know, giving the worms a lot more, giving Frank the pug more to do, giving Tony Shalhoub's character like a bigger scene. It just felt like take all the established things people saw the first time, do it again, but bigger and way less funny. Yeah, I'd agree with that 100%. I did, one of the notes I made was the the craft that she flies off in at the end looks a bit like the ship from Flight of the Navigator. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the first thing that struck me when I watched it. It was, ooh, Flight of the Navigator. Must note that down. A much better movie. <laughs> oh, I love that film. Um, well, let's let's move on to some of the actors and their performances and, and how we felt about that. I, I think, again, Tommy Lee Jones is probably the best actor in the film. Oh, uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I, he plays different versions of himself throughout the film. And for me, the scene where he finally gets his memory back outside of Tony Shalhoub's uh, pawn shop actually shows a bit of emotion. And you think, oh, yeah, that's a good actor right there. Um, he he kept me going through my rewatch. Is Yeah, I'd agree. He's got... There's something about him. And I, I watched um, Man, Man of the House or something where he's a detective protecting cheerleaders who don't really want him there and he's still got so much range in a role that he clearly didn't really want to do i can't say that like tommy lee jones is an actor who never phones it in but i feel like even when he does potentially phone it in he still is convincing and persuasive on screen like you watch some actors who phone it in and they're bad like look at harrison ford when he doesn't care and you are just like falling asleep watching him whereas i feel like tommy lee jones is compelling even when he's kind of just going through the motions. Are you referring to Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull? I actually think he might be a little more engaged in that. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. not. He's not. Full, he's not going full Ford. But I'm thinking of stuff like, uh, oh god, like Firewall or something. Or his appearance in um, the Last Jedi. No, what's it called? Uh, uh, no, I thought he was actually good in the Star in uh, Force Awakens. I thought he actually seemed to be having fun there. No, not that one. I meant the the last one. What was it called? Was he? I was oh, he in that in Rise, Rise of the Skywalker. Skywalker. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 there in a wig, and it's just like, oh come on, buddy, you don't need this money. <laughs> I think that was a favor, Scott. I don't think that yeah. was a. I want to do this role. Let the past <laughs> die. Kill it if you have yeah. to. Yeah, didn't he also do a film with Anne Heche? Oh, that does vaguely ring a bell. Like Harrison Ford's done a lot of stuff where he kind of phones it in, but I, I just look at Tommy Lee Jones as like the consummate professional who I, I get the sense Tommy Lee Jones isn't the world's most fun man to hang out with. Or as at you, if you go to YouTube, look up some of the interviews that poor journalists have had to do interviewing him. My God, this looks just squirm inducing to have to interview Tommy Lee Jones but I feel like on screen everything clicks when he's there yeah even though as you said he's he's not necessarily 100% engaged he is the consummate professional I feel like though watching his character in this film there was so much like poignancy and regret and life experience to that character in the first movie that just is completely absent here and that you know, he comes back from his former life, apparently has zero regrets, never uh, has any sort of moment of, boy, I'm giving up a lot. It's like he was working as a postmaster in like Missouri or something or Massachusetts. And it's like, ah, ha, ha, look at his like sad life or something that he's happy to get away from. 
But it's like, that's not the message we were given at the end of the first Men in Black at all. Well, they once again erased a female character. He left his yeah. wife that he went back for in the first film. She left him. Oh, yeah, sorry. She left him. I stand corrected. And <laughs> But as you said, another female who is completely wiped off the history books. And I'm saying that as a woman. It does annoy me sometimes when you watch these films and it's like, they're not going to contribute anything apart from looking good in a bikini, so we won't actually use them for anything. This movie feels very insecure, though. It almost feels like it's terrified to slow down and actually have these human moments. The first one, I feel like Steven Spielberg was more involved in that first one, to be honest. I, I doubt he was very hands-on with Men in Black 2. Um, and it just feels like they're just trying to rush to moment to moment because they're almost like scared that if they slow down, it's going to go bad. And so it's just like throwing things at the screen to see what works. And a lot of it is actors mugging and just making like weird gestures and Will Smith falling down and, you know, struggling in like piles of tubing just to fill time. And this is an 83 minute movie. Like Tommy Lee Jones spends a lot of it just like doing weird looks at Will Smith. When it's like, did no one write them anything funny to say? I feel like they've done a like a census poll on who went to go see the first film and then tried to figure out what they liked, which I'm going to guess is they assumed it was young boys. Because they've yeah. got... Probably. Yeah, they've got... Okay, let's go through the list of things that are ticking off that young boys like. So we've got uh, Lara Flynn Boyle starting off in a bikini. Okay. Great. Then we've got Johnny Knoxville because he's really popular because of you know Jackass at the time, and then mm -hmm. oh, and then Burger King everywhere. What more do teenage boys want? <laughs> you forgot the poop joke. There was a poop at joke at the very beginning. Well, at the very beginning, when she when Selena uh, Serena arrives on Earth and she is in she encounters that guy who says, "Oh, you taste you you taste really good," so she eats him, and then she realizes she's got a belly. And that's not going to do. So she goes behind the bush, makes a few noises, comes back out with a with the boots and the coat. Oh, she poops him out. I didn't get that. I thought it was actually she. I thought she was throwing it back up. Yeah. And it was some sort of like really dark joke about the modeling industry or something. <laughs> yeah, me too. Maybe we gave this film too much credit, Cam. <laughs> Listen to the noises. Oh, All I right. don't want to. Please don't, no. don't make me go back. <laughs> I, I'm no, definitely watching this film. It, it's it's dead I, for me. I promise. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I'm surprised you picked it. Yes, but um, no, that's it's kind of like there are certain elements of humor that are very schoolboy, like a dog singing "Who Let the Dogs Out." <sighs> Slow clap, that everyone! Comedic genius. Or the dog singing "I Will Survive." I'm not even going to slow clap for that one. No, and the sniff around. And even just, like, some of the, like, celeb cameos, you're like, they feel so much more on the nose. Like, you look at the first one, they're actually pretty clever. They've got that board of aliens, and you have, like, fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi, who was, like, a kind of a popular figure in pop culture at that point. But it's not, like, a joke that kids are going to get. It feels much more, like, adult-oriented in terms of who's going to pick up on some of these references, whereas this one feels really, like trying to go for a lot of youth appeal you've got like nick cannon you know showing up for a cameo yeah. and it's like a very flatly written just hey kids look it's nick cannon um you just have these kind of the michael jackson one is really on the nose as well um it just feels like really awkward they don't feel like things where they're going hey let's you know kind of have some layered jokes stuff for the kids stuff for the adults this feels entirely for the kids 
off-topic point, but can you have a more um, problematic scene than Rip Torn and Michael Jackson on the screen at the same time? It's pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> mm, it's a little bit uncomfortable. But it, it was quite juvenile, I think. Yeah, that's probably a good word to describe the film. Yeah, I mean, humorless. I was, <laughs> I was kind of impressed to see like a cameo by Biz Marquis, who was a beatboxer, mm-hmm. who was like really popular at the era. I was kind of like, huh, that's a little interesting. I was also very fascinated to see Scott. I don't know if you picked up on this one, but we had a cameo from Osseus Labyrinth, and I'm sure everyone listening is like, who is Osseus Labyrinth? They were the contortionists in the tool video for Schism who walked on all fours, shaking their heads back and forth. They are walking through a scene in the alien immigration office at Men in Black headquarters here. I noted that down. I thought, are those dudes from Schism video? I was going to ask you for They it. are. There you go. Yeah. What, what, what are kids like more? Tool and Burger King. <laughs> I'll give them the Tool one. The Tool one's actually pretty. I was actually kind of blown away by that one. Yeah, that was good to see. Um, speaking of cameos, we get Peter Graves turning up, obviously, of Mission Impossible fame. Yeah, I noted. I actually noted that was the first thing I noted down. <laughs> I actually like that sequence. That feels like one of the few moments of invention with this movie, which is do a flashback through a really bad recreation, like a bad TV recreation, and it kind of gets into that kitschy sci-fi element that Men in Black is kind of having fun with, at least in the first one. Um, here, I like that intro, and then it's kind of downhill from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the intro was creative. That's what it was lacking. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So let's let's try and be a bit more positive now. We have Big Will himself as Jay in this film. He's back again. Obviously, we mentioned earlier he's playing the straight man at the start, which is something they wanted to avoid and they learned from you know Wild Wild West, Jim West, Desperado. Um, but any thoughts on his his reappearance as Jay? One of the first things I noted, you know, when he's talking with his new partner, T, mm-hmm. one of the things he was always saying in the first film was, oh, you've got to make it more exciting when you neuralize them. And all he says to his partner of five and a bit months is get married and have a bunch of kids. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> so that's all you're going to say to someone you've known all this time. That's the most creative thing. And then as soon as Tommy Lee Jones is back in it, he's gone from the straight sensible to the one who says, oh, you might not have very much longer left on Earth. So stay up and show love. And she can stay up all night and make and get her loads of sweets when they go and get the weapons from uh, Kay's old apartment. Isn't it bizarre that at the start of the film, he is coming across as this like super agent? He's in control of all these situations. And then as soon as Kay comes back, he's blowing the door off the building and being sucked in and making mistakes everywhere. It's definitely leaning into the Will Smith as goofball, but not funny. This movie like feels to me like a lot of it was put on Will Smith's shoulders without any you know really solid screenplay to back him up. And so it falls into that really lazy thing where Will Smith will sometimes when he's not working with much, just kind of start screaming or being manic because he's just trying to get some energy on screen. And I can admire the dedication to this film that he was bringing in terms of looking alive. And I'm sure he was exhausted after the, after days of shooting this movie, but he's just kind of throwing himself all over the place without any sort of solid foundation to make him actually funny on screen. You just kind of go like, well, Will Smith is definitely manic. 
Yeah, but that's not what you want to take from a film. Unless that's what he's meant to be. Well, I don't know about anybody else. That's not what I wanted to take from a film. I want something with a bit more structure. And as I think you mentioned earlier about the um, the scene where he's in the those great big plastic tubes. And I didn't think it was meant to be slapstick. Uh, I think it was supposed to be slapstick or at <laughs> least... I, I don't know what it was. I feel like maybe on set they saw that pile of tubes and they were like, Huh. Hey, Will. Will, come here. Get in that. Get in those, and let's see what we can make out of this. Let's make magic, baby. <laughs> it's a shame they didn't make magic. <laughs> Isn't it weird that that scene's at like at the hour and fifteen minute mark, and we've covered two hour films, two and a half hour films, and I'm checking my watch at an hour and fifteen. Like, is this done yet? I did the same thing, and I'm watching him <laughs> struggle around these tubes, and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, I feel bad because this is a case of an actor who's committed to the bit. Like, he's not. You know, looking down on it, he's not being, you know, just kind of, uh, he doesn't seem like he's just phoning in that moment. He seems like he's like, okay, I'm stuck in tubes. I can't get out. Let's really, you know, conjure up some Jim Carrey-like physical comedy. And you're watching an actor die in a pile of tubes. (laughs) (laughs) I can just imagine people watching that as it was being filmed and not one single laugh. (laughs) Just dead silence. No, no, there's one at the very back of the room. Like, one of the grips is like, Haha. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it must have been so mortifying, though, because they must have realized at some point that this was just a bit of a clunker. Well, you'll look at what's in the movie. This is an 83 or 84-minute movie without credits. And um, a lot of the comedy is just dead on arrival here. And you have to imagine when they're in the editing room, and this is all winding up in the movie. Imagine what the like deleted scenes were like, the takes they didn't like. It must have been just brutal. Oh, I mean, I don't on, envy them. On positivity's side, we can't say that Will Smith didn't turn up. He is sure. he's throwing his back into it. He's throwing his back <laughs> out doing it because of those pipes. Sure. Yeah. Did he say so? Yeah. I, I, I have to try and be positive about something. <laughs> I, I think he tra- he was trying really hard. Unfortunately. He wasn't given much to work with. None of them were. They no. were all car- they were caricatures of the characters they were in the original film. And when you look at that first one, a big foundation of that movie is the friendship that's formed between K and J. And in this movie, like, yeah, they're back together, but it doesn't feel like there's any magic or spark. It just feels like two actors who are like, okay, we've got to do this again without anything that's actually informing this relationship or developing it in a way that's interesting. It's just like, it's a reset button. It's not an organic growth. And that's a mistake with a sequel. Couldn't agree more, yeah. And I think you had some interesting opportunities where you have, you know, Patrick Warburton showing up as this Agent uh, T, I think it was. Yeah. Um, Like, he's a distinct personality, you know? Like, why not bring in some different Men in Black characters? Like, what if there's two rival Men in Black characters they don't get along with? And you have a bit of a competition there. Like, there's fun things you can do that don't just rely on repeating the same beats over again. I love Patrick Warburton. You've already (laughs) put more thought into it than they did, Cam. Yeah. I love Patrick Warburton too. And when he showed up at the start of this, my memory wasn't strong enough to remember he was out in like four minutes. Um, And I was like, oh, this will be fun to see him kick around this movie for a bit. 
and then he's gone and you're like, oh, well, they did absolutely nothing with him. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of felt the same way with, you know, Johnny Knoxville as well. It's like, wh- why is this guy here? Have you noticed one of the things that both of those characters have in common? Every single person refers to them as dumb and stupid. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. No. He co- he um when he when Agent T goes and reaches for Jeff's flower. <laughs> that sounds so wrong. <laughs> 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 when he goes and reaches for Jeff's flower in the in the drain, Ke- um Jay says to him, "Don't do it." And then as he sees him go up, he says, "Oh, that was dumb." Yeah, and then that's right. when Selena, uh, Selena's refer uh, talking to Johnny Knoxville's character in the um, MIB HQ, she says, "Oh yeah, he's stupid, and don't be so yeah. dumb." And they're constantly referring to every single character who isn't them as dumb and stupid. And that re- I don't know why, but that really stuck out at me that they were the intelligent ones and everybody else was stupid. It's because they're new characters. That, but it also just feels a little insulting. And I think you can have dumb characters who are really funny i mean you know the historical landscape in film is littered with examples of hilarious dumb characters oh yeah but both of these two it's just like say dumb things that aren't actually punchlines and aren't funny i mean johnny knoxville has a second head in this as this alien scud i think his name was Mm -hmm. um and this second head which i believe the name is charlie um this second head is the worst i made a note second head bad there's nothing involving this second head that is funny. In fact, it's all like cringe-inducingly bad. The way you write notes sounds like the way they wrote the script. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as bad as the Bolchinian, though. Oh, I'm so glad someone mentioned up, that. Here come the... Why did they give them such obvious names? Oh, he's a Bolchinian. Really? Oh, That's yeah. what you can come up with. I was actually going to ask, I, I've come up with, a, I think, a better name, but has anyone else got any suggestions for how to improve on Borchinians whilst keeping it somewhat uh, phallically themed? <laughs> uh, I'm going to let you run with this one, Scott. What's your suggestion? I, I'm going to go with Scrotonians. I'll take it. Yeah, me too. It, it, it's it's a bit better. of an improvement. It's a little less on the nose, which is probably a ball <laughs> joke too, but we'll, we'll leave that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, and as for that kick. Oh yeah, the uh, the Matrix style float in the air kick. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this movie is so too early two thousands because you have like who let the dogs out. You have incredibly terrible CG. We'll probably talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have wire foo, and you have Tommy Lee Jones doing that terrible kick, and you have Rip Torn doing a kick that is one of the worst things I've seen in my life. N- not in movies, in life. <laughs> <laughs> that kick reminded me of Robert De Niro in The Irishman when he's trying to beat that guy up and they're, they're trying to make him look like he's a, a virile, strong young man when it's just a, a 70-year-old kicking a dummy. Right, yeah. Uh, it, it's so embarrassing like because you know The Matrix has come out in 1999 and been a massive hit, and the influence of Wire Foo is showing up in stuff like Romeo Must Die or uh, the Charlie's Angels films. And you know that they want to jump on that craze here, although it feels a little bit late in 2002. And it's so embarrassing like to watch Rip Torn and just imagine the circumstances of this actor who's, uh, I don't know, pushing 70, I think, at this point in, in time, um, being suspended from a ceiling, flailing about in the air, 
and then being like gold rip gold and those um those harnesses are not comfortable no i guess it gives new meaning to the word rip torn Let's just say you want to be a Balchinian if you're going to be doing oh, yeah. that stunt. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Okay. Balchinians. Go on. Go on. I do have a question for you guys, though. What happened to Johnny Knoxville in this movie? Uh... I am genuinely stumped by that question. He he beat up the little the little aliens. Uh huh. Um. Then, and then didn't Selena send him to get something? And then, of course, to kidnap Rosario Dawson's character. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Which he uh, obviously brought back to Selena because she was there, so he yeah. delivered. Uh huh. Is this a huge plot hole? <laughs> this movie is so lazy that it didn't even write out one of its primary villains. Wow, that's embarrassing. I hadn't even clicked that he'd vanished because I was so focused on, is it over yet? Yeah, that, it's so bad. This film is so bad that I didn't even care to pay attention to what happened to that guy. Yeah, apparently they answer that question in the novelization. So intrepid listeners, you can track down the Men in Black 2 novelization if you'd like the answers to that question. I'm sure they're running to Waterstones right now to pick up their copies. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing was, I found out something interesting about the guy who created the original comic book. He also wrote an Alien Nation comic. Oh, interesting. I like the movie Alien Nation. I never watched the show and I've definitely never read the comics, but I'd be down. Yeah, wasn't Alien Nation the one with Dennis Quaid? Uh, Dennis no, that's, Quaid? Um, no, that's Enemy Mine. Thank uh, you. Alien Nation, <laughs> Alien Nation has um, uh, James Caan and Mandy uh, Patinkin. I like Mandy Patinkin. Yeah. Yes, I have seen it. It's just, you know, you sit there going, uh, it's that actor. And there were so many films that came out with a similar theme at the same time. Yep. They seem to go through phases. If wire foo was the trend of 2002, then uh, alien, you know, friendships was a real trend back in the uh, late 80s there. Yeah. Kind of like dogs and policemen with Turner and Hooch <laughs> and K9. <laughs> yep. I have absolutely no memory of this film whatsoever. So with that, let's uh, let's, let's quick fire a couple more of the actors in the film. Obviously, Rip Torn was there, so that's all we're going to say about him. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Laura Flynn Boyle obviously stepped in for Famke Jansen, like you said, Cam. I think she did okay with what she had. She didn't really have much. Nope. She certainly didn't have much of a costume. <laughs> No, when you look at what Vincent D'Onofrio got to do in the first one, where you got a lot of physical comedy, he got to really inhabit that character of, you know, a cockroach trapped in human skin. I don't feel like Laura Flynn Boyle got any sort of direction in that regard, or even maybe the time to invest in a character who is a plant. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a plant disguised as a human? Um, I don't know. The movie does nothing with it. She's just generic mustache twirling bad guy. In terms of what's on the page, she does. I think she does her best with what is there, which is nothing. Yeah, she didn't have very much. There wasn't any rounded roundedness to her character at all. But then that's probably how they wrote her. 
I feel bad for her because I think she did the best with what she was given, but she was like the only person involved in this movie who got a Razzie nomination for worst supporting actress that year in 2002. And I'm like, guys, you weren't nominating this movie as like worst sequel or believe me, there's a lot of nominations that could be thrown around on men in black too. She got nominated for a Razzie for this. Yeah. Wow. Well, speaking of uh, Razzie nominated, I'm sure, uh, and we've we've spoken about him already in quite in depth. But Johnny Knoxville, obviously appearing as Scrad slash Charlie. Any other thoughts on the guy? I mean, he doesn't have a character, and Johnny Knoxville isn't a comedian, so he, you're getting what you would expect out of a uh, non-trained actor slash comedian. He was playing. I think he was given, in my view, I reckon he was given this whole. Your character is stupid. And vulgar, play with it. Yeah, and you're I really on jackass. Think... Yeah, <laughs> <Run with> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, then we've got Rosario Dawson up next. I'm always happy to see her in films, but again, as we said, she doesn't really have much to do in this film apart from get carried through by everyone else. Yeah, I mean that's the thing she has done since that point. As you've you've mentioned Marvel already, she was very good as Claire or Night Nurse in the Marvel series. But she wasn't given much in the way of a role in this. No. This is a really embarrassing role, I think, for... This is, like, the epitome of, like, bad roles for women in 2000 blockbusters. Because there's nothing to this character. Entirely passive. And, yeah. Like, there's just nothing there. It's more like, uh, hey, Rosario, you should really take this job. This movie's going to be huge. It'll be good for your career. Don't worry about what the material is. Yeah, she was playing the cliched ingenue completely naive and unaware of her situation in any mm-hmm. way whatsoever. She doesn't even notice that her bracelet is lit up. Someone has to point it out to her. Yeah. And it's weird because this character, the plot really pivots on this character, you know, the revelation that she's an alien princess or something. And it's like, wow, like you probably should have made this character more interesting if I'm supposed to care about this. But it's also her reaction when she's told. It's blank. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you're an alien princess, and if you don't leave, this is going to cause decimation. Okay. Hmm. You can imagine that. Uh, oh, whatever. And they're going for that like sort of heartbreak angle with Jay letting her go to someone she, he's obviously fallen for. And his biggest reaction to it is kind of just like almost shrugging. <laughs> well, to be fair, I was, do- I was doing the same thing at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you weren't supposed to be the one who was losing this woman that you apparently cared about at that point. How long have they known each other? This is ridiculous. Yeah, but that's the way the films go. Have you not noticed that? Have you never seen a romance movie? They meet and five minutes later they're getting married. (laughs) That's true, but I feel like you have to do the work. You have to have these two actors develop a spark or chemistry or be invested in that relationship even if it is a rapid fire relationship as you said in so many movies this one doesn't even do even the most slight of work to make it to make that you know happen he he sees her in the pizza place and you know he must have seen pr- uh, plenty of you know good looking girls in his line of work i suppose and by like 5 seconds of talking to her he's like boy yo yo let's go get some cake <laughs> So he's a uh, wily coyote. Yeah, he's like, he's like, oh, don't worry about the, the 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 rules. Throw them out the window. She's pretty. She gets. She doesn't have to be neuralized. It doesn't make sense. Especially when he, how many times did he neuralize Linda Fiorentino in the first film? 
Yeah, no kidding. And I feel like he had more chemistry with Linda Fiorentino than he does with Rosario Dawson. At least they're actually flirting. Yeah. They exchanged yeah. more than a few words. Yeah. And and she was a character. She had a very specific personality in that movie. Yeah, but then I think that they actually cared in the first film. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's funny because Barry Sonnenfeld shows up in this movie, the director. Um, he has a scene where um, Jay goes to an apartment, or uh, maybe it was Kay had the apartment where they uh, hid all the weapons, and there's the family there watching TV. And um, Barry Sonnenfeld plays the father in that scene, and he's like completely stunned, having having been neuralized. And I wondered if he directed the movie the same way. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't actually done that many in the last decade, though, has he? I mean, um, he did Men in Black Three, and uh, not a lot else because he had Nine Lives, as you said. I just feel like he's someone who, um. You know, some directors have longevity, others have their moment, and I feel like he had his moment. I think he was a, cons- a consultant or something on Men in Black International. That might so just be like a title they give to people who are involved in it, but no actual, he didn't actually mm. have anything to say. No. Yeah, it could have been like the old executive producer credit where it's like, yeah, they kind of gave their blessing or they had some minor involvement or even he was developing another sequel that got shut down and they made this instead or who who really knows. But you know what? To be fair, he did create the visual world of the Men in Black. And so I give him a lot of credit for that, especially for that first movie. And, you know, you get some of that invention brought here. Um, but that was heavily used by Men in Black International as well. So he kind of set the template. Yeah, Men in Black International was not as bad as Men in Black 2, but it wasn't amazing. Right. Um, I had a couple moments, though, that I thought were pretty... I'm not going to say funny, but I thought there were some interesting ideas here. Um, I really actually kind of like the aliens who live in the locker in the train station. It was such a weird choice, and it felt different from what we saw in the first movie. You know, this one, we get all the worms, we get all this stuff that's very familiar... But like this locker of of tiny aliens, I actually thought was kind of interesting and fun. See, I thought that they would have been the perfect ones to have a spin-off cartoon or TV series of some kind. Because they're sort of like the Ewoks in that they were cute. <laughs> All I have to say about those aliens is simply, Oh, Ray, can you see? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when the one that's like dressed like Moses came down. <laughs> oh, that was that was so funny. We've lived by this adult section in the back. <laughs> that may be the highlight of the movie. And I mean, I'm someone who loves like giant monsters. And so you'd think for me, it would be the big worm in the subway tunnels. But it looks so terrible that I'm like, oh, my God, this looks terrible. But the little aliens, I'm like, I can get on board with these. The worm was really cliche, though. Because obviously there's the worm in Tremors, there's the worm in the original Dune, there's the yep. worm in um, Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters. They're, they seem to use it a lot, but it's from that um, Scylla and Charybdis Greek mythology. It also is a little bit reminiscent in terms of the mouth of the Sarlacc pit from Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a lot of originality going on in the creation of that worm. I mean, there's two worms in this film. With multiple worms, yeah. Oh, yeah, I suppose. But that that's actually interesting as well. I mean, 
There's one thing I did want to cover before we wrap up on the knock list is I did think the CGI in this film, despite it being five years later from Men in Black, was actually worse at times. Yeah, you could almost imagine that you were going to see the sets fall over. It's crazy, really, when you watch it, because, yeah, you think of that 1997 movie. And I think part of the thing was a lot of that 1997 movie, they used practical when they could. Um, they used CG when they had to, and they picked their shots sparingly and probably put a lot of work into the shots. Whereas this was a sad trend in the early 2000s, which was, hey, guys, we've figured out CG. Let's use it for everything. And so you had like humanoid looking characters in this who were done in CG face that looked horrible. It looked like the Agent Smiths or Neo in the big, you know, burly brawl in Matrix um, Reloaded. And you just had tons of that. The worm with Will Smith on top of it looked horrible. It's a lot of scenes where to pull it off, you have to put a lot of work in because of the limitations of CG. And they didn't. They were just like, throw Will Smith in there, composite him into the CG shot. And the whole movie is weird. It looks way, way, way more outdated than the original Men in Black. Yeah, it boils down to that whole, we know we've got a hit. We had one already well let's um throw money at something that we aren't quite sure is going to work properly it also feels like a director who's not that comfortable with cg and at that time there would have been loads of those because it wasn't something that was 100 percent mainstream all the time in every film that they made well it's something that the star wars prequels were suffering from at exactly the same time and these both these films were done by industrial light and magic mm-hmm. um you know the the prequels relied heavily on CG, and even now on the Blu-ray sets, they look bad. And I didn't watch this one in HD. I watched it in 720p, and even then, it looked bad. Yeah, I had, I watched it on DVD, and it looked terrible. Um, not even Blu-ray. And um, you know, you think the same year you have Spider-Man, and I feel like some of the um, physicality of the Spider-Man, you know, character in that film doesn't hold up great. Um, but I feel like just Sam Raimi knew how to direct CG and when to use it a lot better than Barry Sonnenfeld. Yep, you won't get any disagreements from me on that one. Has anyone got any final thoughts on the film? Um, a couple of just little odd notes I'd wrote, uh, written down. There's a scene where they go to a video store and David Cross shows up and mugs a lot and really hit this and everything funny to say. Um, but... When they're walking through the video store, there's like multiple signs for Oliver Stone films. And I was really fascinated about that. Like, wh- why Oliver Stone? Is it some sort of in-joke because his movies have a lot of conspiracy theories? I'm guessing that's it. But it felt like the weirdest throwaway reference in the background. It didn't work on me. I didn't even get it. I didn't even see that. Yeah, there's like three or four signs pointing to Oliver Stone films. It's weird. I think me and Ray must have been sort of sleeping at that point for the film. <laughs> um, another another little side note I picked up on, the cricket gun, which Will Smith gives to Tommy Lee Jones, you know, as payback for the events of the first film. The cricket gun now has no kickback. I noticed What's up with that? that. It was kind of like they'd improved it, but hadn't. They'd got rid of the joke. Or they'd just forgotten because... the joke, which is probably worse. Yeah. Yeah. Do they not realize that an audience has a long memory? No kidding. Not even that long. It's only like four years or something (laughs) or five years. (laughs) That's the thing. I mean, it's with with some of them, it's going to be longer. Well, not longer in time, but they were much younger when they saw the film and they're a little bit older when they saw the next one. So eight to 13, it's not going to be 
it's going to be far more significant. They're going to have remembered little things differently. But as one of you said earlier, that there wasn't anything really memorable about the film. I don't remember any of the lines, and I actually barely remembered the theme tune. Well, this is this is my point. I loved the first film, and and, and I said on when we talked about it the first time, Cam, I had the VHS, I watched it a lot, I quoted lines from the film, and I did go and see this in the cinema. And from watching it back today, I I remember bits thinking back to it, but like I haven't remembered them in the last eighteen years. If you'd asked me before I rewatched it what happened in Men in Black Two, I'm a complete blank. I didn't even buy the VHS. I was that uninterested after I saw it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's all the points I have. Um, unless you guys have something else. I have one. Why blue water? Oh, are you talking about when they get flushed out? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a painfully unfunny sequence. Um, I'm guessing they want... Oh, boy, that's a good question, because it looks like a toilet bowl. Yeah, but it didn't. <laughs> um, toilet water isn't blue, obviously, so it's like, I don't know if they just want it to look like pool water or something in a toilet. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. I can't crawl into the minds of these people. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to? No. <laughs> Neuralize me now. <laughs> So I think that most people want to be neuralized after seeing this film, but then they might yeah. go, they might make the mistake of going to see it again. Maybe that's <laughs> why I don't remember it at all. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, only the only thing I have left on my notes because I had sparse notes for this film is I did laugh at the, the autopilot gag that they stole from airplane. I love airplane. Okay. Yeah. Which is a great film. Yeah. Unlike, yeah. unlike this. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're going out on a positive then with Men in Black too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about a completely different film. Don't don't get me wrong, folks. If you want a film that's less than two hours, and I'm very glad it was that you can look at your phone the entire time, and it's just to feel the noise of the emptiness in your house, then Men in Black Two is a great choice. Emptiness in your house, emptiness in your soul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or you could just do what I do and put on the sweet life of Zach and Cody. Oh, okay. That, that didn't occur to me to do. That fills in the noise and they're 20-minute episodes and I don't even have to watch them. I just have the noise in the background. You, you can tell I'm we're... I'm really we're... showing my age, aren't I? <laughs> hey, I watched uh, Sweet Life of Zach and Cody. Nothing wrong with it. No, it's a, it's a great way to fill the noise. Far better than Men in Black 2. I, I think my alternative would be to watch The Virtual Fireplace on Netflix. I think that has more character uh, development in that. <laughs> oh dear. Poor, uh, poor Sonnenfeld. He's not coming off very well on this one, is he? Uh, maybe he'll swing back with Men in Black 3. We'll have to see in a handful of weeks. Well, we have definitely laid the smack down on this film's uh, candy ass, as Will Smith says. But the question remains, folks, does Men in Black 2 make the knock list? Now, Ray, as you're our guest, you get the first say. No way. Care to no, expand on it, that? It doesn't, I don't, uh, well, A, we've already mentioned it's a not very secret society. They don't actually, they're not really spies in any way whatsoever. And if we're going to judge on if it's a good film or not, no. <laughs> there's my expansion over to you cam 
<laughs> um, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of Burger King commercials in this movie. Um, and Burger King references. This movie is worth less than a Burger King burger to me. Like, there's nothing. This is like the soggy burger in the dumpster out back. There is nothing to this movie. This is a hell no for Men in Black 2 in the knock list. <laughs> okay, so we have two no's. Uh, so I guess my vote doesn't actually count now. But uh, I, I feel like I should say it anyway. I didn't like this film as a kid. And I still don't like it now. It's a definite no for me. It offers nothing to the Men in Black franchise. It doesn't develop anyone's character, I don't think. Um, it was, from my point of view, a cash grab. Pure and simple. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I'd go with that one. It's definitely yeah. cash. So that one, and probably didn't get that much cash either. So <laughs> that's a that's a three-way no. There's no argument on this one. Men in Black 2 is not making the knock list. That means both Men in Blacks haven't made it so far, Cam. Well, better luck on the third one. Mm. And don't forget International, of course. Better luck on the third one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a no from me, it's a no from Cam, and it's a no from Ray. Men in Black 2 is not making the knock list. And on that revelation, the dossier on the film is complete and marked as classified. Now, before we discuss what's coming up, Ray, where can everyone find you and uh, tell them more about your podcast? Okay, well, my podcast is Not Before Coffee. There are currently only three or four episodes up and every single week I talk about my life, which is so interesting, but also um, books that I've read, movies that I've seen and TV shows and I love doing my own little mini opinion charts and I don't care that people don't agree with me, because why should I? Uh, you can find me on Spotify, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts and Podbean. And you can find me at need underscore three underscore mugs over on Twitter. Yeah, you definitely needed uh, more than three coffees to get through Men in Black too. And if you ever come back for a follow up on a Men in Black film, I'm sure you'll need at least uh, 20 or so. <laughs> Just hook it up to your veins. Yeah, I, you know, I've quite often thought about getting a caffeine IV. <laughs> it will certainly keep you awake for it anyway. <laughs> um, right, Cam, what are we tackling next week? We are going to take on the 1994 Arnold Schwarzenegger film, True Lies, directed by James Cameron. This was a massive hit in 1994, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it holds up. Yeah, I've never seen it. I've gone on record saying that I've not seen it and I've been uh, lambasted on Twitter about it. So I will finally be watching this film. I'm quite looking forward to it. Awesome. Ray, have you seen it? I have. Jamie Lee Curtis is probably the best thing in it. Can't disagree with there. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> there you go. So your mission, folks, if you choose to accept it, is to watch True Lies with us. And don't forget, you can find the knock list, of course, on letterboxd.com slash spyhards with a list of films that we've covered uh, so far and will be covering in the future. And you can, of course, follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.